Hello and welcome to this new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. It's a special day today. You know, I have just two terrific guests and of course my usual co-moderator Vicky Mays, whom you know is a professor at UCLA. And our guests are Georges Benjamin. Dr. Georges Benjamin is the executive director of the American Public Health Association, and they have their 150th anniversary this year. So uh, in order to say a happy birthday to the American Public Health Association and to George Benjamin, we've organized this podcast and have invited Dr. Rich Besser. He is the the president and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And Frankly, today, one of the most important foundation in public health for what it does and its impact all over the the field. So having these two people watching what public health is today and where, in which direction we are going from their two different perspectives to extremely influential organization is going to be very, very fascinating. So I just also want to add that we are supported for this podcast by the University of Cincinnati. All right, let's move into the field. And Vicky, as usual, you just chime in whenever you want to. But we want to look forward and want to know from you, Georges and Rich, that's how I'll call you, what's coming next? You know, we had those years of pandemic. What's coming next in public health? What should we, what should we look for? Anyone? Well, let me start by just saying that I think, I think that it's an opportunity now for public health to reemerge, to have both a resurgence. I think we've seen what public health can do when, under severe stress. And there are some things we did extraordinarily well. And there were some things we didn't do well. But I think that a lot of our needs have been exposed And I think going forward, there's an opportunity for us to really rebuild the public health system for the future that every community deserves to have. Thank you. Yeah, Georges, I I would agree with you. You know, I I think when when you think about what the the public wants, people want to live in communities that allow them to thrive, allow them to have the, the healthiest life possible. And if you think about that vision, there's no getting there without a, a strong, robust public health system. And uh, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to, to, to build the public health system that we as a nation deserve to, to give it the support that's absolutely necessary and to ensure that everyone in our country has what they need to, to, to thrive. You know, we're gonna go through a period, I think, over the next couple of years where, where public health is gonna continue to get beat up a little bit. And I hope, Coming out of that will be a commitment to a, a much stronger, much more stable public health system because there's no, there's no getting to the, the society we want to have with, without that. One of the things that I'd love both of you to talk about is how do we get to where your vision is going? You know, how do we get the workforce? How do we get that infrastructure that we so desperately need? 
Well, let me start by saying that that there have been several studies and numerous reports, quite frankly, over the last 15 years, both the Institute of Medicine slash National Academy of Medicine have done reports. There's been a Commonwealth study. There's been the CSIS has done a report. It's not, we don't have the intellectual thought on paper already. And even, look, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation did an extraordinary piece of work on data going forward. So we know what we need to do. And APHA has put together an alliance of groups that creates a table and a way forward for us to begin building that infrastructure. But I do think it's going to take not only leadership, but at the local level and state level, but it's going to take some leadership at the national level to make that happen. And I think your point, I think Rich's point about the next couple of years is basically built on the fact that we now have a legislative divergence where at least one group in Congress is interested in finding fault with everything. Now, when they have those hearings, it's going to be important for us to not only find out what's wrong, and there's nothing wrong with the introspection to find out what's wrong, but we're also going to have to demand that solutions come out of those hearings and out of the, the, the oversight that's going to be happening over the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I, I, I think that uh, it's important that, that those of us in public health are also honest with ourselves about some of the, some of the shortcomings. We, we did a survey with the Harvard School of Public Health and NPR in 2021 that looked at what the public thought about, about public health. And this was you know, granted in the midst of a really bad period in the, in the, and the, those who had great trust in public health is just over 50% for, for CDC, but it was, it was below 50% for state and local public health. The, 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 the public was, was not feeling, but, but even with that, it was over 70% of people felt that public health needed more resources in order to be able to, to achieve its mission. So, I think that we need to address both of those without stable long-term funding, without ensuring that the public health workforce at the federal, state, local, tribal, territorial level is robust and is, is supported. We're not going to get there. But we also need to address that trust issue and say, why is it that trust in public health is not is not higher given the mission of public health? Who is it that, that has the, the greatest trust in public health? And who may never have trusted public health? And how do we build a public health system that that warrants the kind of trust we want it to have? I want to chime in here because, you know, I'm in disagreement with this idea of that there is no trust in public health in the country. I mean, we have 70% of the people who voted with their arms, who got the shot. I was in Texas last week. I mean, 99% of the people my age in Texas were vaccinated. I mean, there's been a huge success. No one can give me another example except for smallpox inoculation during the Revolutionary War of such a great success of public health. We all know what it means strategically, technically, logistically, etc., to get those shots, you know, to all these people. And they, they, they wanted them because they want public health. I mean, one thing that has changed is that people know better now what public health is than they used to, to, to know before. So maybe they trusted something that they thought was a form of medicine. But now they know public health is about population, it's about prevention, and there may be uh, some work to do. 
to convince more people. But why should we look at the current situation, you know, not extremely positively? I mean, I, I don't understand why we focus so much on the distrust. Well, I, I oh, go, go ahead, Georges. No, no, go ahead, Richard. Well, you know, what, what I would say is that one of the things public health did really well was recognize that you need different messengers in different communities. And I would attribute that really high vaccination rate to a recognition that if it's just public health leaders who are out there saying, roll up your sleeve and get vaccinated, you're not going to get the job done. You will for some. But what we saw during, during COVID was that community leaders, religious leaders, faith leaders, every local doctor, teachers, neighbors were, were saying the same message and, and was on script. You know, one of the things that, that I thought was fascinating in, in, in New York City during COVID, there was all of this misinformation coming out and the health department set up a misinformation unit. And what they did was when, when, when information that was incorrect was identified, they quickly got the messages out and, and not just from public health, but to this trusted messengers. And going forward, public health, you know, I think that, I hope that public health embraces the idea that that's not failure. It's you know identifying who's trusted in communities, engaging with them, not just during pandemics, but every day to, to get the job done. That would be a real benefit coming out of this pandemic. Yeah, I, I think we were successful at putting the public back into public health. No question about that, right? But I, but I do think it's like anything else. People don't like the healthcare system, but they like their doctor. They don't like the legislative Congress you know, system, but they like their member of Congress. I think we did have some issues in public health. And that is that for the first time we were operating in the fishbowl and the people that are mad at us, they're mad at us about very concrete things. They don't like us telling them they had to wear a mask. They don't like to tell them they, you, know, you couldn't go to a bar or a restaurant. But I do think that in retrospect, like anything, we save lives by doing that. And when people really do the look back, they will recognize that we did it in something that was in their best. I do think there was in some communities, it was very clum, you know, done in a very clumsy manner. And I do believe that there was an enormous disconnect between some public officials and their health officials. And we, for the first time, had a, 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 an echo chamber, an opposition to a lot of good public policy, whether it was public or some other things. And that is the misinformation, disinformation channel that's out there, that for the first time, we have now got to figure out how we, how we manage it with good public information and trusted messengers. So we were successful in some areas, but we were unsuccessful in others. And I think that's going to be a, a challenge for us going forward. I, I would agree with you, Georges. I, I think that, that one of the biggest challenges for public health and, and anything based on science and, and evidence is how do we deal with misinformation and disinformation and learning how does information spread? You know, if you think back to the pandemic in, in 2009, we, it was a very different playing field where, where you had, you know, just four or five major networks that were spreading information that, that you could reach. You weren't seeing social media playing in the same way that you're doing this pandemic. You, you weren't seeing the same deliberate attempt to, to mislead people around health issues. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm, I'm really excited that there are so many groups in public health and, and science and, and health writ large who are looking at how do you address misinformation and disinformation? Because without that, without a shared set of facts and information, 
it becomes very difficult. And if, we, if we're faced with the same kind of politicization of, of public health crises that we saw in this pandemic with future public health crises, we are going to be in big trouble. Okay, let, let's move the discussion, you know, a little bit further and, and discuss what's coming. You know, what are the issues? Because over the last three years, the main public health issues have been, you know, put in the bag and we talked only about COVID-19. So what are the main public health issues that are coming and how should we address them? What are? Well, you know, the, the, the big epidemics that were here pre-COVID are still here. So opioids obesity epidemic, the firearm violence epidemic, those epidemics are still here. We had a growing epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases, which is now beginning to peak. Well, we'd be lucky if it actually peaks. Let me just say it's still growing. So those things are still there for sure. And we had the 10 leading causes of death, which continue to be an issue. We have growing automobile crashes. That's returning as an issue, particularly because of distracted drivers. We have heart disease, lung disease, cancer, where we've made enormous progress, but we still have a ways to go. They plateaued during the pandemic. And now, because of the delay in healthcare that occurred during the pandemic, we should, we're going to see a reemergence of that, reemergence of vaccine-preventable diseases because of some of the misinformation that's occurred. And we have a mental health crisis that um, has always been there but it, I think is now growing. So I, when we, we roll up our sleeves, we got a lot of work to do. I, I, I would agree with, with George's that all of those are, are critical public health issues. The one more that I, I put on the table was one that was highlighted in a big way in, in 2020 with the, with the COVID pandemic and the movement for, for racial justice and the, the economic crisis. And it, it's the, the problem of structural racism in America as a public health issue. We saw the CDC declare racism to be a public health, a major public health problem. You've seen hundreds of health departments declare that, that racism is a public health crisis. And, and yet you haven't seen a lot of action in terms of, well, what do you do about that? And it's, it's one of the things that, that we're very focused on in the foundation is supporting groups that are trying to answer that question. So George has lifted up the data project that, that we supported in 2021. And it was really about what kind of data do you need to, to collect? Who should have input into the data you collect and how it's used so that you can identify health issues by race, by gender, by sexual orientation and identify the inequities that are driving the disparities. You know, during my time at, at CDC, we frequently talked about, about health disparities. Why are the rates of disease different among Blacks and Latinos and, and, and white people? But we rarely talked about what the drivers were of that. And, and there, you know, if we're not focused in, in public health on the drivers of those inequities, and there it's, you know, poverty, wage, who, who is paid a living wage and who is not, who in the midst of a public health crisis has, has family leave time where they can stay home if they're, if they're sick, who lives in a community where there's re ready access to healthcare services and high quality rules. There are reasons in America why those things are so segregated. And if we don't measure those and lift those up as the underlying cause, we're going to continue to see you know, decades of difference in life expectancy in communities that are just a few miles apart. And I think this is one of the big challenges for public health going forward and something where public health can have a major impact because identifying those issues and then going after policy changes to dismantle those systems and structures that, that, that privilege some and disadvantage others 
will will just have major consequences and impact on every one of those public health challenges that George has lifted up. No, absolutely. And, you know, we've got a project we're doing now with the DeBeaumont Foundation to we've identified the policies that we think uh, it's kind of a policy menu that communities can now to begin to try to address those issues of racism and discrimination. And we're hoping now to incentivize communities to take those up and to begin to make a change. And I know the Reagan Udall Foundation for the Food and Drug Administration has a project called RISE that is looking at how to make sure that we enhance the collection of data by race, ethnicity, the various demographics that, that Rich was just talking, because of what gets measured gets done. And we have a big problem in our country that we're not capturing the data that we need to make data-driven decisions. And then when you add that to social determinants that and you do those to a, a, a racial and ethnic lens, that's a significant problem. Just raise a question because some of the issues that you talked about are issues that we've always had. Some of them are getting worse, particularly like mental health and others. So what is it about the future that's different that is either going to make this task of your vision easier or more difficult? For example, Rich talked about the misinformation. A lot of that has to do with how fast social media allows us to reach a very large audience. So can you all talk about what in the future is going to help or hinder that we should be addressing, not just the issues, but what are the tools, the attitudes, you know, the technology that we might use to make the difference that you're talking about, Georgia? I think some of the major pushback that we're having on racial equity is a big issue. There's no question that this, this feeling among some communities that they're somehow is something called reverse discrimination. This is not reverse discrimination. This is trying to label the playing field for everybody. It's gonna be very important. In some cases, it's actually racism as at its root core. So we're gonna to have to name it, and then we're gonna to have to address it quite directly. And I think we should not run from it. So I think that's gonna be very important. I also think that we have to realize that this, in many ways, this is the last gasp of people who feel threatened and are being driven to, to hate others. And we're gonna to have to, again, recognize it, defend ourselves against it and, and push back. This, it turns out this is a minority of people, and in many cases, a small number of people, but they have a big brain. And if we're gonna achieve racial equity and justice for everyone, including those folks in you know, rural communities that don't look like me, white rural folks that farmers and people in Appalachia and people that are having the same issues. We've got to deal with those root causes of poverty for everyone. Lack of education for everyone. Lack of health insurance for everyone as part of that process. And we have to convince those communities that are voting and advocating against their own best interests that it's in their interest to join us in a collective way across all racial, ethnic, gender, lines in a meaningful way to achieve health and justice for everyone. I think that's that's really well said, Georges. You know, I I, uh, I I love the way that Heather McGee frames this up in her, her book and her podcast, The, the Some of Us. Because she talks about this false narrative that if you address issues of racism, you're taking away. And through her work, she identifies what she calls the solidarity dividend, where people of different races coming together, you see benefit for all. Living benefits, benefits all. Protecting the environment protects the broader community. And, and you know, finding ways to talk about these kind of benefits in a way that, that, that 
that demonstrates the 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 detriment to all by reinforcing and perpetuating systems of structural racism will will get us far. And you know, one of the things we we're working on doing as a foundation is how do we talk about these issues? How do you talk about structural racism in a way that doesn't end the conversation in half of the the legislative offices in America? How do you lift this up in a way that demonstrates the benefit to every community? And yeah, poor poor communities do not know race. They may be a, 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 a disproportionate impact by race, but the vast majority of people in America who are, who are poor are white. And that gets lost in translation when you talk about government programs to provide support, whether you're talking about expanding Medicaid or you know, providing paid family leave. These are things that will benefit everyone in our country. Absolutely. And, and I think the, the wording of everything we do, including you know, how we collect data on what's going on. The term surveillance is not the best term if you want to reach the people you just mentioned, you know, because it sounds like it's government control. We know what it means, but we need to change all that and, and help monitoring and bringing new words. But again, I think that now after those years and the number of deaths that have been prevented by public health, People are going to brag about it and to run on those issues. Don't you think so? That the lessons of those three years are going to be used to build a new public health understanding in, in this country and bring us to a, a new level. Because again, I'm sure that before the crisis, for most American, public health was medicine for the poor. It was not an approach at the population level centered on prevention, which is a collective answer to a collective threat. Once this gets understood, we have a, a new, brand new domain that's open to us. Don't you think so? Now, I can tell you that I get up every morning with my head held high, and I recognize that my county health officials save lives in my county, and my state health officials save lives in the state and the health officials save lives that I've worked with. And I, and I, you know, my colleagues and peers at APHA and all the other partners that we, you know, we save lives. And I'm very grateful that I've had a chance to do this among people who get up every morning and that is the first thing they think about. So no, they, they shouldn't, they shouldn't, shouldn't feel bad about anything they've done. And, and, and I admonish those elected officials who don't recognize the work that the public health community does. Yeah, I I, I wish, Alfredo, that I, I could agree with you. You know, I, I think that public health saved countless lives from COVID and, and all of the things that 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 people never see. You know, whenever you're talking about prevention, it's really, really hard to talk about things that didn't happen because somebody who is dedicated did did their job. It's it's when there's there's a, a lapse or a gap that, that that's lifted up. I frankly, I'm I'm worried. I'm worried that coming out of this this pandemic, we're going to see states that question the the requirement for childhood vaccination as a as as a requirement for for getting into school. I'm I'm worried that the things right now are so politicized that there are people not who aren't going to run on public health who are going to run on, on restricting the, the, the rights of public health and the value of public health. You know, I, I was on that CSIS panel that was looking at the CDC, and 
Yeah, we, we were talking there about the need for CDC to be able to require states to report numbers of cases of disease. I think that most people in America have no idea that that's voluntary, that the CDC can't require a state to tell them how many cases of COVID they have. You know, there's a, only a few diseases that are required to be reported. But the rest, it's like, you, 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 I remember at CDC, you'd say, would you mind sending us the data? You know, how do you feel about that? But the idea that you can't require that information and that you can't require reporting of all of the demographic information that's that would be really valuable to identify communities that are that are at the greatest risk and aren't getting public health services. You can't require that that either. During these these deliberations, the the what we were hearing from Congress and both sides of the aisle was you can forget about new authorities for CDC. You can forget about an increased budget. All that's going to be taking place in the next couple of years is really calling calling public health onto the carpet. And, and then what will happen if, if that truly is what, what comes out is the next big, big public health crisis, public health will be in, not in the position it needs to be to, to respond. You know, you saw that you you saw that with Katrina. You you've, you've seen that with with Ebola. You see it with all these public health crises that there's a big flood of one-time money that comes in, and then no one wants to think about it anymore. It's, it's just so over it that the money goes back to the the pre-crisis levels and the system atrophies again. And we have to do a better job at making the case for that. But it has to be, I think, people outside of public health who are lifting it up as well because. Public, public health can be seen as self-serving when they're the only ones who are making the case for why steady, stable resources are, are so essential. I, I, I see your point, but, but also, yeah, yeah. But also as a historian, I know that people are going to question. And there have been, you know, two thirds of the deaths that have been lost and could have been prevented were among Republicans. I mean, they will be orphaned, young people, new generation. They will ask, why didn't they get their vaccine? Who did, who lied, etc. And And I, mean, I, I agree with you on the short term, maybe hard, difficult, but on longer term, I'm pretty confident that it will turn on the right direction. But I, I'd like to use the time that we have left to ask you to, you know, since you are such a two important association and, and, and players in, in public health, I would like you, to, Rich, to tell what do you, how would you see the role of APHA in the coming month and year and ask Georges to say the same thing about the foundation. So maybe you could start, Rich. Yeah, well, first I'll start with happy birthday, APHA. 150 years is, is absolutely wonderful. I think the APHA is, is an absolutely critical organization in, in our nation. When you look at who makes up the APHA, it's an incredibly diverse group of people who come at public health from every angle possible. And that's critically important. You know, for, for public health to be successful, everyone in America has to be able to see themselves in public health and in the people who are leading public health and the people who are doing, doing the work every single day. And when you go to, a, to an APHA convention, it is, it, is, it is wild because there's so much going on there because there's so much commitment and passion to all the different pieces of, of, of public health. And I think going forward, APHA will play a critical role in continuing to encourage young people to see public health as the most incredible thing you can do with your life. A really, really rewarding field to go into, one that can make a difference here and, and around the globe. And I think APHA will continue to do that. 
Wow, wow, that's that's a compliment to Georges. I mean, wow, that's great. So what would you say, Georges, to, to Rich and the foundation? No, I think Rich is, thank you, Rich, for that. And, uh, you know, the, the foundation has been at the centerpiece of ensuring in strategic way that the foundational aspects of health are, are addressed. The movement into um, in, ensuring health equity, ensuring that the fundamentals are there to engage communities in an effective way, I think has been a strength of the foundation for, for many, many, many years. And I think looking forward, some of the challenges that we continue to have, you know, you know, we, we thought we had our arms around tobacco and then we had vaping. We, we've got to figure out how we fundamentally move forward on that. We've made the, the argument for the social determinants. We don't have to argue with people anymore about the importance of racism and the social determinants. I mean, they're fundamentally there. Yes, there are people pushing back against it, but that argument is made. So I think our Robert Wood Johnson's foundation's work in that area is absolutely essential going forward. I, I think one of the things that we all have to do collectively as partners with foundations like RWJ and in particular is figure out how we build the, for the long term, the, the non-governmental public health infrastructure going forward so that we have communities that are stronger and able to engage one another going forward. And I think RWJ plays a, an essential role in building that community capacity going forward and convincing both the federal government to invest as well as private community organizations to invest. Because, you know, quite frankly, what foundations do is they they help, they, they make those strategic investments in communities that nobody else will make. And they, and they do the fundamental proof of concept that I think is very, very important going forward. And then helping us figure out how to scale that up because we have a lot of proof of concepts. We know what often works, but as a society, as a group, we've nearly really failed in, in figuring out how best to scale it up so that it, it becomes commonplace and normalized. And RWJ has done that very well in some areas. And I'm looking forward to working with them collaboratively as we go forward. That's great. I mean, to see the mutual respect that you have to each to each other. I mean, that's the strength of public health. I mean, that makes me optimistic. And before I, I give the last word to Vicky, I just want to say that uh, from the journal perspective, you know, we're very grateful for the association to have made a huge effort to support an independent, <coughs> autonomous journal with its own resources. They have the, the journal doesn't belong to any corporation. It's thanks to APHA that AJPH as this independent organization journal exists. And I want to thank, you know, the foundation for being almost everywhere, supporting, you know, the most important aspect of our uh, of our work. So both of you play a key role in uh, the existence of the AJPH and its thriving, etc. And I want to thank you enormously for that. And Vicky, you got the last word. I always appreciate it. In addition to saying happy birthday to APHA and to thank Rich, one of the things that both of these organizations, if we think about the future, something that both of these organizations have been critical in is generating the next generation of individuals who, you know, in contrast to what we've seen in the past are on point because you make sure they get training, you make sure that you know there's no censorship in how they discuss and debate and even challenge both of the organizations. So I guess my last kind of is both of you have a focus 
on young investigators and going forward. What's your wish in terms of for each of your organizations in terms of what you're creating to deal with public health in the future? Well, I, I certainly hope that we build a, a robust, diverse workforce of, of, of practitioners who understand the role of not just public health, but also health care and, and, and the community's involvement. I, I hope we build people that, that know how to best bring community into this so that we continue to have this um, perspective that the community is, is part of public health. Yeah, yeah, I, I have a similar feeling. You know, I, I think that for public health to be successful, every young person in every community has to has to see public health as a valuable thing for for their lives and as a as an avenue for change in their in their own community. You know, you need a, a diversity of lived experiences in public health and public health leadership for us to 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 not shy away from the fundamental challenges that that have to be addressed and i see i see young people every every day who are who are all in and that that gives me a lot of hope great and that's 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 the right words to close this conversation a lot of hope that's what we have in public health thank you so much George's, Rich, Vicky, for this fantastic conversation and uh, hope to see you all soon, you know, very soon. Take care. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.